This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, quick question, Goose. You hear that music and you think of what? I'm sorry, this is a trick question. Is that Todd Rundgren? <laughs> no, no, it's not, Ron. You have any idea? Todd is God. He's not playing that music. Sure. Preservation Hall in New Orleans or my Uncle Joe on banjo. One of the two. Whoa, we've got a winner. Yes, sir. And that's a reminder that this week is what, Ron? Mardi Gras. It is Mardi Gras. That's right. The only time where you can get trash one night and spend the next six weeks sleeping it off. Hey, Gooseman, what are you giving up for Lent? Small talk. <laughs> Ouch. How about you, Ron? Uh, I'm giving up first ballot Hall of Famers, and I hope the 47 other voters in the hall do the same. <laughs> well, I'm giving up spring, Ron, mostly because we have no choice here in New England. Uh, we got two snowstorms last weekend, and uh, we may have another in a few days. No, uh, we don't are say not, that. Do not yeah, say we that. May. Um, but what we, what we are not sacrificing, however, is an all-star lineup today of guests with Denver President Joe Ellis joining us today to talk about Pat Bowen reaching Canton, Hall of Fame voters Kent Summers and Matt Mayoko. Give us their takes on their first and the first and second picks in this year's draft. And wide receiver Charles Johnson. Yes, Charles Johnson. He's back. He's back with the undefeated Orlando Apollos of the Alliance of American Football League. And Gooseman, the cards have the first pick in the 2019 draft. You're a draft expert. What do you think they give up for Lent? I think they're giving up Josh Rosen for Lent. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, wow. Ron, I'll give you the second choice here. We're talking about the 49ers. They're number two on the board. Number two. What are they giving up for Lent? Uh, <laughs> I don't know what they're giving up. I think I know what they're going after, though. Are they going after a pass rusher? Probably Josh Allen, I would think, from Kentucky. Unless they get lucky and the guys above them give up Nick Bosa, and then they'll take him. There you go. What are you giving up for Lent, Ron? Uh, well, sinning, which gives me a wide range of possibilities. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Well, we're going to soon find out what everyone's giving up because that's what's coming up. We're going to be talking about the 49ers and the cards. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, uh, did you guys know that Daylight Savings Time returns this weekend? Yes, Ron. I love it. Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, I, I, I didn't. I'll be honest with you. I didn't until someone told me today, and I thought, wow, that really seems awfully early. But I say that every year. And, and, and Gooseman, I guess I'll ask you right out of the gate here. Uh, I asked you about Lent in the earlier segment. What are you going to miss most about that hour you're going to lose Sunday morning? Oh, boy. I hate to ever give up an hour because at our age, we're never quite sure we're going to get that hour back. <laughs> Goose man, I'm fired today. <laughs> oh, that's a sad thing. Uh, well, personally, I won't miss a damn thing. It's one less hour for me to get myself into trouble. So that's a good thing. <laughs> Only well, 23 chances that day. That is a good thing. And remember, everyone out there, turn your clocks forward one hour this Sunday. Turn it forward. <laughs> this means we're getting closer to spring, Ron, uh, though yes. you wouldn't know it by the single-digit temps we're getting this week. It's true, but turning the clocks back is one of those signs that you may have survived another gray, cold New England winter, like when you see the geese fly back that came from Canada, you see that first crocus pop up from the ground. <laughs> turn that clock, in, as Bart Scott would say, can't wait. Can't wait. <laughs> 
Jerk and Crocus. All right. Let's see. Uh, what we got here? Oh, yeah. I looked at this uh, interesting note that I thought got under the radar last week. Uh, Atlanta owner Arthur Blank announced that the price of some concessions at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, which is where the Super Bowl was held about a month ago. Um, anyway, Arthur Blank announced that he would roll back, yes, roll back, decrease the prices as well as go cashless. So, for instance, the price of hot dogs, which were $2, they're now $1.50. Chips and salsa? Two fifty, where they were once three bucks. I think you get the idea here. But uh, I, I just think in an era where we got Bryce Harper getting a three hundred thirty million guaranteed contract, NFL salary cap is going up to what eight hundred and one hundred and eighty some million. And really, you can't buy a good pair of running shoes. I know for under a hundred bucks. Uh, we have Arthur Blank cutting prices, and Ron. <laughs> All I can say about that is, hallelujah. All right, Arthur Blank. Sure. I mean, a great gesture by Mr. Blank, but uh, uh, my guess is uh, the result of that won't be that he has to go to Home Depot to buy himself a shed to live in. Uh, I think he's going to be fine. You know? uh, <laughs> well, Goose, uh, maybe we should put Arthur Blank in the Hall of Fame of Public Relations. Yeah, I think they should park the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile permanently in front of Mercedes- Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Arthur Blank's pricing may be the best thing that's happened to hot dog since the invention of the bun. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Goose, man, just, he's in fuego today. Anyway, Arthur Blank, congratulations. Uh, and Goose, thanks for that uh, comment. Love that one, too. Hey, uh, Arthur just didn't win over fans, guys. Uh, you know, when he did this last year, one thing I did see, he increased revenues, yeah, by 15% because people said, hey, cheap dogs, we're going to go for them. But anyway, got to be a lesson there. Maybe it's at uh, bigger and better. Um, you better okay, hope Joey Chestnut, you better hope that guy Joey Chestnut, oh. the hot dog king, doesn't show up. He'll put him out of business. <laughs> what did he eat last year? Like 70 some or something? Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's almost Drinking the water. Oh, boy, it's my oh, favorite show. It's brutal. <laughs> it's brutal. Um, anyway, I uh, also saw something, and this one is close to our Mr. Rick Gosselin, I mean, geographically at least, that uh, former tight end Jason Witten, he's now not a former tight end anymore. He returned to the game after one year away. Of course, he was the analyst for Monday Night TV and signed a one-year contract with the Dallas Cowboys. And Gooseman, he's 37, been away from football for a year. What exactly does he offer the Dallas Cowboys? Well, let's not forget he was coming off his worst season of his career in 2017. He averaged less than nine yards a catch, five touchdowns. Now he's two years older with an extra year of rust on his body. You know, one of the two most pressing needs in this team this offseason was tight end, and I would hope the Cowboys do not think they have addressed it by re-signing Witten. You know, they talk about it, reducing his snaps and having him serve as a mentor for the young tight ends on a team. I don't think those degrees need that to come back. You know, he wants to play. He wants to win a title. I'm just not sure how much better the Cowboys are going to be with an aging, non-speed receiver on the field. Maybe the Cowboys should talk to you, Gooseman, before they go into the draft. Um, of course, Ryan, this means... Jason Witt will not be eligible for the Hall of Fame's class of 2023, and maybe, I guess maybe, he will be for 2025, provided if he stays only one year. Um, so how many times between now and then do we hear him mentioned as your favorite guy? A first ballot Hall of Famer! Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that certainly we should just waive the, all the, the, the waiting period rules. Just put him in right now, don't you think? Yeah, why not? Let's put him in. We can put him in like have a halftime celebration. It'd be great. You know, uh, uh, you know I, uh, the good news for me is is I always cover my ears, so I don't really hear it. I cover my ears as soon as I hear one of these bouffant hair guys on TV say you know, something like, Clark Judge is surely a first, and I just cover my head. You know, and I'm just saying that's it. Well, I am. I am. You are a first something. <laughs> something for something. Hey, Goose, a uh, quick question here. What do you think provoked this move? His failure to be the next Tony Romo uh, on Monday Night TV or his longing for the game and the Cowboys? 
I think it was kind of mutual. I, I think he was given an offer by ESPN he couldn't refuse last year, so he reluctantly left football for that Monday night booth. And if he had waited a year, the opportunity would not have been there to walk right into ESPN's lead broadcast team. I don't think his passion to play football ever cooled, but I do think his stock as a broadcaster cooled considerably and rapidly. Uh, that that it just didn't work out. Witten wasn't Romo. He wasn't Aikman. He wasn't Daryl Johnson. Leaving the field was a mistake, a mistake he's trying to rectify this season, but it may be too late. Okay, he wasn't, Ron. Even, he wasn't even Eric Dickerson, if you remember. When <laughs> That's right. Eric was out oh, of it. <laughs> Ron, question for you here. Yeah. Who would you choose to replace him, and, and who do you actually think does replace him? Oh, I got the perfect guy. T.O., put him on there. He's always got plenty to say. Oh, put him on there. And then make the first game he has to do, the Hall of Fame game. It would just be great. Be he wouldn't show. Hey, Gooseman, who, who would you choose to replace him? I tell you, I'm a Dan Orvlosky fan. The best analysts are the former quarterback. Orvlosky is a former quarterback. And Ron is, tells us all the time, you can't have enough Connecticut guys talking football <laughs> on radio and TV. Absolutely. Love it. All rise. Here comes the judge. Hey. You know what? I love that, too, because every time I hear that, I think the Yankees are playing somewhere. You know what, guys? They are. Baseball is back. Yes. But that's not what's up next. I am. Yeah, I am. I'm making the Hall of Fame case for someone I wrote about this week on our website, thetalkoffamenetwork.com, and that's former Green Bay running back Vern Llewellyn. You never heard of him? Oh, guess what? Neither had I. Because Vern Llewellyn was a running back for the Green Bay Packers from 1924 to 32. He was also an emergency quarterback and a defensive player who once led the league in interceptions and one of the two best punters in three decades with Hall of Famer Sammy Baugh, the other. In short, Vern Llewellyn, you may have just guessed, could do it all. In fact, former Packers historian and former Hall of Fame voter Cliff Crystal, who all of us know, says he's not only the best Packer not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, he might be the best Packer ever. You heard me, ever. Not only was a five-time All-Pro, but he scored more touchdowns than anyone in his era. Set a career touchdown record that lasted until Don Hudson broke it in 1941. Was sixth in the league in receptions during his tenure and led the Packers to three straight NFL championships. The first was in 1929 when he moved from running back to quarterback to replace the injured Red Dunn and played all 60 minutes in a 20-6 defeat of the New York Giants that led to an undefeated season. The Pack was 12-0-1 that year and the Packers' first NFL championship. According to Cliff, next to the Ice Bowl, that was the most important game in Packers history because it brought the franchise credibility. As I said, Vern Llewellyn was the star of that team, but he was the star of that era too. So much so that when Curly Lambeau in 1948 picked his all-time Packers team, he named Vern Llewellyn at halfback ahead of Hall of Famer Johnny Blood. And guess what? Johnny Blood had no problem with it. In fact, when he was inducted into the Hall in 1963, he said Llewellyn should go in ahead of him. Well, guess what? He hasn't. Worse, he hasn't even been a finalist. Quote, he was way ahead of his time in terms of ability, unquote, said former quarterback Charlie Mathis, who later served on the Packers' board of directors for five decades. Unquote, and now, quote, if he doesn't get in the hall, it's a joke. Quote, was not in. And nobody's laughing, but I'll be honest with you. After hearing all about Vern Llewellyn this past week, I'm now convinced that Charlie Mathis is right. It is a joke, and it's a cruel one. Clark, in your opinion... Who's the best Packer not in? Well, I'm going with Vern Llewellyn. I'll be honest with you, based on everything I've heard from Cliff and the others he spoke to. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I said, Gail Gillingham. Well, that's because I'd seen him play. Never saw Vern Llewellyn. But um, Goose, as I just said, he was more than important to those Packers championship teams. He was indispensable. Interesting. Cecil Isabel's my guy. He threw all those balls to Don Hudson. Otherwise, you never would have heard of Don Hudson. 
Only all decade quarterback not in the Hall of Fame. Tries so, goose man crazy. You want you want to ask me to, to, to make my choice, Ron? Well, I'll make yeah. my choice. Yeah. Vern Llewellyn. Jeez. One because Cecil <laughs> Cecil Lisboa played only five years. Llewellyn played nine. Yeah, Two because good. Cecil Lisboa won one championship. Llewellyn won three. And three just because of what you said. I wrote about Llewellyn. You wrote about Isbell. <laughs> you guys get hey listen. You guys are on the senior committee. You get them both in. Me, I'm going to the next commercial. This is the talk of him now. <laughs> This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. The NFL draft is, what, like seven weeks away? Yeah, it starts April 25th. Anyway, um, people are already asking, what in the world are the Arizona Cardinals going to do with their first pick? Well... Hopefully our next guest has an answer, because he's no stranger to you, nor to us, of course, and that's longtime friend, former Cards beat writer and Hall of Fame voter, Kent Summers, now a columnist with the Arizona Republican. Kent, I just read this week, I'm not sure where it was, that Arizona's first choice now at the first spot, provided the Cards don't trade out, has come down to this, Nick Bosa or Kyler Murray. You reading those same tea leaves? It could be. I think you could throw Quinn and Williams in there. I don't think they've decided yet. I, I could really? sit here and, like a lot of other people, tell you, oh, this is the guy they're going to take, et cetera. But I, I don't think it's been determined yet. They're they're going to look hard at Kyler Murray, but if that's, that's far from a done deal. Pairing Nick Bosa with Chandler Jones as outside rushers would be very tempting. And, you know, I don't know if they've had an inside presence like Quinn and Williams since oof, maybe Eric Swan in the 90s. So the real guys would be tempting. Kent, what do you think the chances are they trade out? I think they'd like to, um, you know, depending on what they could get. I don't think they want to go very far down. As much as they hate this spot, they realize the value, you know, that can come with, you know, staying in the top five, the top seven, et cetera. But I, it wouldn't shock me if they, uh, if they wanted to move out, if they can get, a, you know, a, a, a bounty of picks. Steve Kime, the general manager, is a, a college scout at heart. He loves the draft. And, and this team has so many needs, they, they could use the extra players. Would, would trading out be a vote of confidence for Rosen? Yeah, it definitely would be. No, no question. And I, I, don't, I don't think they've soured on Josh Rosen at all. I mean, he had a very rough rookie year, but, you know, nobody knows better the struggles that team went through last year than people that were in the building. I mean, he had very little chance to succeed. Um, you know, injuries at receiver with Christian Kirk, all five offensive linemen lost to injury. I mean, it was just a terrible, terrible offense. And I don't, I don't think any quarterback could have looked good playing with that group. I, I, I quit evaluating him at midseason when Christian Kirk went down uh, with a foot injury. I mean, that, that's how bad that offense was. I think Josh Rosen will be just fine. I think he'll be successful in the league. The, the question is, you know, do the Cardinals keep him? Or, or is everything that ties Kyler Murray with Cliff, Cliff Kingsbury true? And, and do they go that route? Okay, that bodes a question. How much say will Kingsbury have on this pick? You know what's interesting? Since he's been hired, he's deferred to Steve Kime on almost everything. He's admitted he didn't have a lot of contacts among the coaching community and the NFL. He relied heavily on Kime to fill out his staff. 
Um, he's relied on Kime so far, and the, the guys they've signed in free agency, guys who have been cut by um, other teams. I think for them to take Murray, it's going to take Cliff Kingsbury going to Steve Kime and, and Michael Bidwell, the team president, and saying, I want this guy. You, you made an out-of-the-box hire when you brought me in. You brought me in for my offensive ingenuity. This is the guy I want to run the show. So give me this guy and let's go. I really think that's what it's going to take. Now, is, is Kingsbury, does he think that highly of, of Kyler Murray to do that? I, I really don't know yet. You know, it's, it's, it's very hard to say right now, but I think that's what it would take for them to, to stay at one and take Kyler Murray. Well, in that regard, uh, uh, Kent, obviously the general manager picked the other guy. Uh, do you think the two of them uh, could have some conflict over this, uh, where the GM's saying, look, I still think Rosen's the guy, uh, uh, you know, he didn't get a fair shot, and the other guy's saying, well, I don't want him, I want the Could this become a conflict that, that, that causes problems? I suppose it could. It doesn't seem to be in Kingsbury's personality to let that happen. You know, and, and, and maybe he took the job with the understanding, and, and certainly this was how the Cardinals uh, framed it. You know, the, we've got our quarterback, Josh Rosen. You know, work with him. He, you know, he, fits, he can fit your offense, make this work, and we'll, we'll get you help in other areas. Certainly, I... It, 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 yeah, it doesn't seem in Kingsbury's personality to have you know a, a major headbutting with Steve Kime, something that Michael Bidwell's got a referee. I don't think it will come to that. Uh, I, I really don't, but it's going to be interesting to see how it develops over the next 50 days or so. Now, if you were running the draft, uh, and from what I've seen, it might be better off if you were, uh, <laughs> you, uh, what would you do with the first pick? Would you try to get rid of it and stockpile some more picks and try to solidify the team in, in more than one area? Would you make the pick? Uh, how would... What, what would yeah, I would, I would, I would try to trade down. I, I would try to trade down, but not too far, and so I could still get one of the elite defensive players there. Uh, failing that, I would stay in that spot and draft Nick Bosa or or Quinn and Williams. I, I really would. I I think you could, you know, this Cardinal defense underachieved last year. It should have been much better than it was. You add one of those guys, it's a good enough unit to sort them survive while Kingsbury, you know, can can work what they hope is magic on the other side of the ball. I, I don't I like Kyler Murray. I followed Oklahoma football a lot. I saw every game he played last year. I think he can be successful in this league, but I don't think he's Baker Mayfield. I, I don't think he's a guy who's going to come in as a rookie in the second half of his rookie season and take the league by storm. And, and I, I saw enough Josh Rosen in training camp in the first half of the season last year to think he's, he's talented enough to succeed at this level. He cares enough. Uh, he works hard off the field. He put in the time. His teammates like him. I think he has all of those things that, that are required to be successful. So that, that's what I would do. I, I, I don't think I would sit there at number one and take Kyler Murray. Kent, and we're speaking with Hall of Fame voter Kent Summers on the Talk of Fame Network. But, uh, Kent, you're talking about uh, Rosen and the lack of protection he got last year. I mean, at some point, don't you have to protect him with a running back and or offensive line or offensive lineman? Um, Just something to fix the last-ranked rushing attack. When do you think they address that need? Boy, they need to. You know, they, they would love to do it again in free agency. They've tried that route over the last several years, and 
you know, ha- haven't been, haven't had very much success. And, and, you know, from looking at it, there's not a lot of help in this free agent class along the offensive line. They're, they're counting on some guys returning to health. Center AQ Shipley, left tackle DJ Humphreys, guard Justin Pugh. Uh, you know, it's been a real failure. I, Steve Kime has done a lot of good things as general manager. You know, in his first three years were the most successful three-year stretch in franchise history, but the last couple of drafts uh, haven't been great. Although, you know, I, 2018 will be okay. But when it comes to drafting offensive linemen and developing them, they've really, really struggled. Uh, they're counting heavily upon Sean Klugler, their new offensive line coach, to come in and and change that. He's he's pretty highly regarded. He was really their number one target to add to Cliff Kingsbury's staff. Um, and and you know, and what Kingsbury do has to do a part of his challenge is to get David Johnson, the running back, back to 2016 levels. You know, when he had 20, 20 touchdowns and 2,000 plus yards from scrimmage. And you know, I think that's a big attraction of Kingsbury. He was very creative with his screen game at Texas Tech. David Johnson's a very good receiver. I think we'll we'll see a lot of a lot of that. But yeah, it's much more than developing Josh Rosen. You're right. I mean, they they've got to fix some things up front, and they've got to get David. Johnson back on track. Ken, how much heat is Kime under? I mean, he whiffed on Wilkes last year. If they, if they go Murray, he whiffed on a quarterback and a coach in the same year. Is he under any kind of pressure? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think he is. And if he's not, he, he should be. You know, I, there were a lot of fans and, and people who thought he should have been fired uh, along with Steve Wilkes. I I think a couple of things worked in his favor. One, you know, as I mentioned, the, his first three years on the job were were greatly successful. Uh, two, he has a very close relationship with uh, Michael Bidwell. And and three, Michael Bidwell was right there every step of the way in hiring Steve Wilkes. It, it's not like he can pawn it off and say that was Steve Kimes' call because Michael Bidwell's there flying, you know, flying around, and it's it's it was a two man hiring committee uh, when they when they hired Wilkes, you know, and then the backdrop to all that was the extreme DUI and suspension Steve Kime had last summer, which, you know, was unfair to Steve Wilkes, who, who went through much of training camp without his GM uh, in place. So, yeah, I, I think this is a really a, a make-or-break season for Steve Kime in it, and it should be. This team has to show progress, and, and it's, you know, it's regressed badly over the last three seasons. <laughs> Are people out there looking at at uh, uh, Kingsbury as uh, sort of the new version of Sean McVay? That he's going to come in and take this struggling quarterback, and, and a year later, that quarterback's going to be uh, one of the best quarterbacks in football. Is that sort of the at least what some people are are thinking, or are they all sort of scratching their head, wondering how he got the job in the first place? <laughs> well, the Cardinals are thinking that. Michael Bidwell's thinking that. Steve Kimes thinking that. That's why they hired him, uh, and they 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 didn't hide that fact at all. Um, they they think that's the way the league is headed, and and they wanted a bright young offensive mind um, to come in here. I think a lot of fans um, have. You know, are, are thinking, kind of scratching their heads, thinking, "Is is this really going to work?" I wasn't a big fan of the move. I don't think there's a great history of college coaches making the transition to the NFL with zero NFL coaching experience. I mean, it's a it's a really difficult uh, transition, and especially you're joining an organization that that has holes in uh, you know a lot of spots, especially on offense. So, yeah, this is definitely Michael Bidwell and Steve Kimes' call, and, and you know, and Michael Bidwell's done a lot of things for uh, good for this organization but he's also a guy who likes to 
sort of, you know, see himself as, as you know, an out-of-the-box um, owner, president, et cetera, you know, willing to, you know, sort of anticipate where the league's headed, and that's that's definitely what they're trying to do with Cliff Kingsbury. Ken, we got to run, but thanks, as always, for the time, and best of luck with that number one draft pick. <laughs> thanks for having me, guys. You got thanks, it. Yeah. That was Hall of Fame voter Kent Summers, the Arizona Republic. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Last month, we elected eight persons to the Pro Football Hall of Fame's class of 2019. That included... Denver owner Pat Bolin. Now, as most of you know, Pat was one of two contributor candidates and has been oh so close to making it to Canton in past years. Well, now he's there. Though he can't join us because of his health, we have the next best guest, and that would be Broncos president and CEO Joe Ellis, who took over the team after Pat bowed out because of his declining health. And Joe, first of all, thanks so much for joining us. And second, uh, our congratulations to Pat and the entire Bolin family. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, you guys. And uh, it is a great honor and worthy one, and we appreciate the support that he got from the three of you and, and everyone else. Um, you know, it's just a big thrill, I think, for, uh, for, for the family. I, 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 I like to think it's a big thrill for Pat. His health doesn't really uh, – it's not in the best of condition right now, so it's hard for me to, to let you know exactly how he's feeling. But I do think when his family talked to him via Skype – on that Saturday prior to the Super Bowl, um, uh, I just like to think that he recognized it, and hopefully he'll he is uh, he is understanding of what a great achievement it is for him. It's a it's a greatest it's it's your greatest individual honor you can achieve in pro football. Joe, I want to follow up on that since you mentioned it. Um, I know how much this meant to you and to the Broncos and to the fans out there. Can you quantify how much it meant to the Bolin family? Well, I'm not sure I can. I just think that they all sort of grew up, not sort of, they did grow up uh, with this team. You know, um, their ages range from, um, I think now I'm going to be wrong on this, uh, Ron, Rick, and Clark. Sorry, we're wrong on just about everything, so that's fine. Yeah, (laughs) their ages range range from 21 to close to 50, I think, maybe, maybe 51. And so Pat's owned the team for over 30 years. So, you know, you can imagine, um, uh, it just being such a big part of their lives and, uh, um, uh, for this, uh, to happen to their father, to have it culminate in this fashion. is just, uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a terrific honor. It's a great thrill for them. Well, as you know, Goose and I are on the contributor subcommittee, so we've heard all the arguments in favor of Pat reaching the hall, and I'm just wondering, what in your mind, uh, looking at his career, was Pat's greatest achievement? Was it the team's continued success on the field, or was it his work off of it, particularly with the TV contracts? Yeah, I, I, I think he would he would lean towards the uh, the former. I think he would tell you it was a team on the field, and I think he felt that by being at the office every day, he was an owner that really had no other assets that uh, were of uh, that he paid great attention to. He had some advisors that helped him on his outside of football businesses, uh, but those were minimal. Uh, his his passion, his love was the Denver Broncos. 
and uh, he was an enormously competitive guy. So doing anything and everything he could to put the best possible team on the field, surround it with the best coaches, best players, all of that. Uh, that was that was uh, priority number one for Pat. He did love his work at the league, and he loved interacting. And I think one of the uh, interacting with uh, with commissioners and uh, some of the more influential owners across the league. I think Pat really kind of came into his own when Pete Rozelle resigned or stepped down, retired, I guess. And uh, you guys obviously remember this because you've all been around the league for a long time. Jim Finks was sort of the anointed one, and a group of owners stepped in and said, as uh, Pat has used this term all the time, just a second here. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, Paul Tagliabu became commissioner. And, and I think at that point, Pat really found his feet and uh, became kind of one of the influential owners for, for Paul uh, and, um, you know, planted his feet firmly on the broadcast committee, the labor committee, international work, um, uh, and a few others as well, including the Hall of Fame, by the way. He's on the Hall of Fame committee, and I think all he did was go to the meeting and bitch about how there weren't enough Broncos in the Hall of Fame. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, he did, yeah, right. I mean, because actually I was working at the league office, and I remember him doing that because I was the committee liaison for a couple of years from the league office. But anyway, um, I do think his, his number one pride and joy was his team and the success that, is, that he had. And uh, he didn't like losing. He wouldn't be a happy owner right now. He wouldn't be happy with some of us. So, uh, you know, we got to get things back on track and uh, hopefully make him happy. Joe, Jerry Jones once said, quote, Pat was the brains and I was the brawn when it came to the team negotiations. I realize that's a pretty rudimentary statement, but how close to the truth was that? Um, I think they both had a lot of brains. I, I you know, I still, I, I mean, Jerry throws a lot of stuff against the wall and sometimes people don't understand why or what it is. Um, but I think he's just, uh, I think Pat had a lot of admiration for Jerry's enthusiasm and passion for not only the Dallas Cowboys, but our league, even when he was going down ways that, that Pat may have thought weren't in the best interest of interest of the league. Um, so Pat would tell you that, uh, that, that we shared in the, in the brains part of it. And, uh, and maybe Jerry had a little bit more brawn because Pat was very, uh, very shy guy, very modest, very humble. Uh, Jerry's, Jerry uh, is not afraid to be out front. As you all know, Rick, you live there and you, you witnessed it over the course of Jerry's ownership. Uh, and I, I would argue that that's not necessarily a bad thing uh, for an owner at times. So um, it, they both kind of, they, they, we sat across, I mean, still to this day, we sit directly across from the Cowboys at league meetings. And, you know, as a conversation is ongoing, Jerry's always, pay, you know, he's always paying attention, always throwing out ideas. And I mean, it's, it's been fun for me. Um, I wish Pat were there to, to converse with him, but it's been fun for me to do that with he and Steven and Charlotte and, and young Jerry. And, um, uh, you know, I think together they, they, uh, if, uh I got to get my years right here, Rick and, and Clark and Ron, but you know, that Fox deal, uh, in sort of the mid nineties, am I right about that? Or early to mid nineties, right. the very first deal that they did, uh, the two of them, uh, you know, Art Modell was pushing to kind of help out the current partners and maybe we ought to keep things flat or give them a rebate, cut them a break. They've got us this far. And, 
I remember to this day, because I was at the league at the time, I remember the league meetings where Jerry and Pat stood up and said, not so fast here, you know, we've got, we got a chance to do something and grow this game. And, and I think, I think to, together, collectively, that had to have been one of their proudest moments, bringing Fox in, and Rupert, Mar- Rupert Murdoch and uh, David Hill and company. I mean, uh, uh, you know, from, from that point on, television is just, uh, it was always a, the lifeblood of the league, but it's just skyrocketed in terms of value for the league and, and, and value of the franchises and all of that. Former NBC Sports head Dick Eversole told us last summer that Pat, quote, changed the game forever over the past 25 years with his work in TV and the NFL committees. That's a strong statement. I realize you're not exactly partial on the subject, but you did work the league office for eight years. Is that accurate? Yeah, I, I think it is accurate from uh, from a television standpoint. I think not only what, what happened with that Fox deal, but then getting together with Dick and taking NBC to Sunday night football and making that sort of the showcase primetime product, um, a lot of owners were very skeptical because Monday night football was so entrenched with the nation, right, and, and the viewership of the league and, and, the, and the, the fan bases and the, the avidity and all of that. And, and Pat was just, he, he listened to Dick and he said, we can make this happen. And, and he really was a strong advocate for Dick when, frankly, I'm not sure there were a lot uh, that, you know, most people were kind of scratching their heads. Uh, and I think that did, again, elevate the league. The, the progression of steps in broadcasting that Pat was involved with at the front with people like David Hill and Dick Ebersole, uh and George Bodenheimer at ESPN, uh, all of those people, and the relationships he had and the way he was able to to poke and prod and, and, and move things forward and, and get deals done. Um, you know, television has been kind of the lifeblood of the league Collectively, with the in-stadium audience, I don't want to decline or, or dismiss how important that is. But uh, from from that standpoint, I do think uh, Pat had great vision and 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 is one of the um, one of one of several people. But he's not the only one. But one of the key guys, owners in the league, who helped kind of change the uh, the platforms of the NFL as to how people absorbed the content, viewed it, all of that. You know, one of the things that I think is really interesting is this bond that he and Elway have. Obviously, that back to to when he was a player, but uh, but it seems stronger than most QB uh, owner relationships or or just player owner relationships. Um, what what is that bond all about? You know, beyond the obvious that you know he was a great player for him. I think Pat recognized the, as uh, as much as anybody, and there's a handful of teams that had this over the years. Uh, but in his early years of ownership, he recognized how important the position of quarterback was to the football team, and that he had on his team one of the game's greatest players at that position, and one of the game's greatest athletes at that position. And he had to do everything he could to keep him. That the other parts, they weren't fungible. You had to have other good players, but you absolutely had to have a franchise quarterback. And, um, and you know, the franchise tag, I don't think a lot of people know that. I, Pat stood up at a league meeting. I was at the league office at the time and said, if we're going to do a deal with free agency, because it was plan B, and you guys all remember that back in the early 90s, we're going to go to... to uh, unrestricted free agency 
I got to be able to protect one guy on my team. Because if I don't, if I'm unable to do that, if I am forced to lose him and allow him to leave, I face a huge problem with my fan base. And I think, I think there are enough, probably a handful of owners left over in the room today who would remember that. I remember that. Um, and so I think their relationship bonded out of respect for Pat's respect for John and how much he meant to the organization. Uh, and John's appreciation of Pat doing anything and everything he could, putting all of the resources into the team to try and win Super Bowls. John went to five Super Bowls, uh, and, and an additional championship game, uh, against Buffalo, which he lost, which the Broncos lost. Uh, and we're in the playoffs several other times when John was a player. And each and every year, I think John felt my owner is giving me every chance I can to win here. And, uh, you know, he felt that way, I think, as we've gone forward with him as our general manager. Joe, thanks so much for the time. And we'll see you in Canton this August. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks, Joe. You got it. That was Broncos president and CEO Joe Ellis. Up next, it's a two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're almost at the end of our first half, so you know what's coming. That's the two-minute warning. That's right, it's the signal for the two-minute drill, and I've got this weekend's question, so here we go. How much of the combine did you guys watch on TV? Not a single second. I watched as much of it as I watched of a C-SPAN, which would be zero minutes. In your opinion, what's the most significant drill? 40-yard dash. Shuttle run, test agility, and your ability to pick up your underwear quickly if it ever, if it ever has to do so. I guess I just flunked my home drill there. What's the least significant drill? Vertical jump. I agree. Unless they start rebounding in the NFL, I don't get the point. <laughs> what was the biggest piece of news to come out of this year's combine? Yeah, the Eagles are going to let Nick Foles leave in free agency. Kyler Murray's hands are big enough to grip a football, which I sort of knew already. If the NFL can move the draft, why not the combine? Agreed. If you can move regular season games to other countries, you can move the combine to other cities. <laughs> there you go. Well, let's say they do. Where would you put it? Yeah, Frisco, Texas. <laughs> a homer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Vegas. They should do everything in Vegas. That they should have a fantasy draft right along with the regular draft there too. Be great. Yeah, great for fantasy. Uh, who's the first quarterback you take in this year's draft? The guy that best fits the prototype, Drew Locke. I think Daniel Jones of Duke take the smart kid. You only have to throw the ball four yards these days. How much did Kyler Murray's measurements help him? Standing 5'10 is no asset as an NFL quarterback. I think the only help, if you believe it, there's two Russell Wilsons, which there is not. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who's the first team to trade out of the top five? Your San Francisco 49ers. Well, I would say the likely the 49ers, but you know the Jets will do it and screw it up either way. So there you go. D- DK Metcalf, Terry Metcalf, or Eric Metcalf? The only Metcalf who played his college football in the great state of Texas, Eric Metcalf. <laughs> I'll go with the only Metcalf who ran 4-3-3-40 at the combine, DK all the way. That's the end of the match. 
gentlemen. Don't go anywhere, people. We have AF star Charles Johnson, Hall of Fame voter Matt Miyoko, and Dr. Data on the other side of the break. So stay where you are. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark. We're on. And in this hour, we're going to hear from Hall of Fame voter Matt Mayoko on the 49ers draft, as well as get the lowdown on Alliance star Charles Johnson of the Orlando Apollos, the undefeated Orlando Apollos. And, uh, yeah, we're going to spend another day in the life of Dr. Data. That's the good news. But we've also got some bad in the bad. Gooseman, we lost another Hall of Famer this week, and I mentioned that to you because, again... Uh, this one hits close to home, and again, I'm talking geographically, talking about the loss of Hall of Fame hockey player Ted Lindsay from the Detroit Red, Red Wings, who died Monday at the age of 93. Now, you grew up in the Detroit area, and you played hockey in the Detroit area, so my guess is you must have seen a lot of terrible Ted. Yeah, my brother Tom attended his hockey school in Port Huron in 1966, and this is a, he was pound for pound the toughest player ever to play in the NHL. The guy went 5'8", 160, and nobody messed with him on or off the ice. He started the NHL Players Association off the ice and won the league's scoring title in 1950 on the ice. He was a member of the production line, the captain of a team that won four Stanley Cups in the 50s, and the first player to skate around the ice with the cup in his hands. The man did it all. Well, you sort of answered my next question, which I was going to ask you, is there any moment from his career that stands out for you? But is it that moment right there? No, the, the Revens traded him to Chicago because of his union activities. And he spent three years with the Blackhawks. Then he retired, sits out four years, and Red Wings asked him to come back at the age of 40 in 1965. He helps him finish in first place, and he had 173 minutes in penalties that year at the age of 40, second most in his career. The man <laughs> never lost the fire. Wow. Well, Ronnie, you're a hockey coach now. That's go right. Go Grizzlies. Go, go Grizzlies, yeah. But uh, you've covered the pro sport, and I mean the hockey sport for years, and I, and I know you saw Ted Lindsay play. Sure. We don't know how fierce and relentless he was, but what do you remember next? Um, the guy who helped organize the NFL player, NHL Players Union, as Goose said, or is the guy who took 600 stitches, most of them on his face? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, any guy who says this, as Ted Lindsay once did, I, I was born a sore loser, and then proves it by spending uh, 1,808 minutes, in, which is the equivalent of 30 games in the penalty box. My kind of guy. He's all of our kind of guys. Anyway, Ted Lindsay, you'll be missed. In fact, you know what? You already are. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. You know, uh, guys, when Mike McCarthy didn't get the job with the New York Jets after last season, I wondered, what was he going to do this year? Well, apparently what he was going to do was spend his Fridays attending high school basketball game, which is okay, I guess, if, if and I say if, you just watch them. But that didn't happen last week. Uh, nope. Apparently after Notre Dame Academy, which is a private school in Green Bay area, and, and where Mike Stepson apparently attends and I think plays for, it lost to a, a school named Pulaski. Well, Mike wasn't too happy. Okay, no problem. His stepson's team didn't win. It happens. But it's a one-point loss. And afterward, Mike was so unhappy, he followed officials off the court, and according to a complaint filed with police, quote-unquote, crossed the line with his, un- with his action, which is to say 
is accused of berating them. Now, Ron, as a coach of a youth hockey team, I'm sure this yeah. sounds all too familiar to you. Oh, boy. What do you do in a situation like that? Uh, well, for me, and I told all my parents before, the father's suspended for the rest of the season. Don't come around because they're not letting you in. You're not coming to practice. You're not coming to games. Uh, it's up to me. You can't even come in the parking lot. You know, put your kid on the corner. And I'll pick him up. Uh, you, know, you just can't ask kids to grow up and behave themselves and, and, and treat people with respect, even when things aren't going your way, and then have the parents act out. So uh, uh, it's kind of too bad. Look, we all uh, like Mike a lot, uh, but he ought to look in the mirror and, and, and get a grip and say, "Sorry, bro, you got to go." I mean, what are you doing? That's <laughs> just that's bad. You know, we we all know and like uh, Mike, uh, so we know it's not good. Um, Gooseman, uh, if you're at Notre Dame Academy, you, you know, what do you do here? I mean, you give them a warning, you don't do anything, you ask for an apology. What do you do? Well, I don't even think it's going to be on Notre Dame Academy. I think it's got to be on McCarthy. I think he must, as you said, take a look at the mirror. And I, I think with the first thing, you issue, you issue an apology to the officials of that game and to the prep officiating organization. I mean, you can yell at the officials all you want in the NFL, but high school basketball in Wisconsin isn't the NFL. Right. And if I'm uh, if I'm Mike, I probably put myself in the penalty box and, and not show up for for the rest of the season. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, and Ed, I don't want to make too much of this story, but you know what? Hey, guys, it's early March. Combine's over, and we have another hour of afternoon sunlight <laughs> this weekend. There we go. Okay. Anyway, uh, back to last week's combine. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Or leave get it. Enough of it. Can't get enough of it. I saw where the Raiders. John Gruden. Ron, your Raiders. Yeah. Um, he didn't deviate from Rick Gosselin's script last week. He said the league doesn't need more replay. It needs less. Goose, that must have warmed your heart. Yes, sir. The more the league gets involved in anything, the more muddled it becomes. Let the players decide the outcome of the games, not the officials or replays. I'm with John. I'd say don't reduce it. I'd say get rid of the whole thing. <laughs> well, I don't disagree, but uh, sadly... The league does. And now we have John Harbaugh, friend of the show, John Harbaugh of the Baltimore Ravens, calling for a quote-unquote sky judge, similar to the official that Mike Pereira suggested on the show earlier this year. You have everyone in New Orleans pushing for it. And you have Dean Blandino, who, like Mike, is a former league head of officiating, saying the Alliance of American Football is providing a template for the NFL to use it. Template? So that's like good. It. What's yeah, that? that's right. Well, What's that's a, a push run. <laughs> I think that's the school in Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, they're a good basketball yeah. team template. <laughs> that's right. Um, anyway, Ron, that's a big push. I mean, yeah. so less might be more in Oakland, but I'm not so sure about 345 Park Avenue. No, I, I agree there. And, and here's the other problem. Um, uh, more cops don't necessarily mean less robberies. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just, I do like the eye in the sky. We've talked about that in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but I don't like this sort of endless effort to eliminate any and all uh, human error uh, from the officiating side of the game. Uh, you know, uh, John Harbaugh and the rest of these coaches would all be better served, in my opinion, spending their time trying to eliminate their own mistakes. Uh, because, in my experience, coaches lose a lot more games for their team than officials ever will do. Yeah, well, and, and Goose, uh, I just want to just go back to John Harbaugh because I know what his point is. His point is, what's the worst spot to watch a game? What's the sidelines? That's where the worst spot is because you can't see too much. So coaches go to the press box level to watch from above. Why? Because you can see more. So if you have the technology, he says, why not put an official up there too to correct obvious fouls like the one we saw in the Saints-Rams game? So why not? Again, I agree with Ron. Lesser is better. Or in this case, fewer are better. Adding more officiating eyes aren't going to make this a better game. It will make for a slower game, not a better one. 
If you do want to put an eye on this guy, I've got one suggestion. Do it only for the playoffs, not the regular season. Oh, that's, I like Ooh. that idea. Ooh. All right. Let's put that like one on it. the uh, back burner and revisit it during the playoffs. Hey, um, one other thing. It did seem like there was much, really, if any, discussion on this by the competition committee last week. How much goose? How much traction do you think it gets at the owners' meetings in three weeks? Uh, not as much as you'd think. If the NFL can't make any headway with replay in the competition committee, the owners will have a tough time voting any change. To change the rule, you really need an endorsement from the competition committee, and I don't see that coming down the pike in the matter of replay. There are far more questions than answers at this point. Yeah, no, I, look, I, I agree with it, but I do have a good suggestion. They should put all the coaches, because the, as you point out, Clark, the view is much better upstairs. Put all the coaches all them. and all the officials upstairs, then lock the door, shut off all communication to the sides, and let the players play the game. Radical note. Let the players play. I like that. I like that. <laughs> That's a good idea. Hey, Ron, one other question for you. Yeah. What do you think uh, the New Orleans contingent does at the owners' meetings Ooh. when this isn't voted on or this Ooh. isn't passed? What Ooh. do you think happens Ooh. there? Oh, yeah. That, that's yeah. I mean, look, I understand their their uh, you know why they lost their mind. You know, but look, you, you know, you got everything. You, you know, you've got so many of these tools already, and you still ended up with uh, an egregious situation like that. So the in the end. All these sports are in all the great history. And look, we're all about the history of the game. Uh, the history of any sport you can think of, part of it is the great mistake, you know, and, 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 and what happened as a result. And they're trying to eliminate that because they think the game's more important than it is. It is a game. Last time I looked. Now, here's someone who always has traction with us. That's always, and that's our own Dr. Data, a.k.a. Rick Austin, a.k.a. Bill Belichick's favorite Scott. With something about, what is it, Goose? Running the ball, catching the ball, both? What is it? There was a buzz at the Combine last week about quarterbacks and where Kyler Murray, Dwayne Haskins, and Drew Locke all fit. There was a buzz about the edge rushers and where Nick Bosa, Josh Allen, and Montez Sweet all fit. There was a buzz about tight ends and the possibility of two or even three going in the first round. But there wasn't much buzz about the running backs. Alabama's Josh Jacobs is a top back in this draft but he doesn't even project as a top or even a top 20 pick. When it comes to running backs, the NFL has its eyes closed as it continues to de-emphasize the position. They have become afterthoughts. League-wide in 2018, NFL teams rushed the football the fewest times in a season in 23 years. Each team averaged 25 rushes per game, about 10 fewer runs than passes per game, which is why the, the Steelers let Le'Veon Bell sit all that season. The, no longer, the NFL no longer places a premium in running backs. You can survive without them. And that's why we were all amused when we heard Cincinnati's Joe Mixon talk recently about getting 400 carries this season. There are teams that didn't rush the ball 400 times last season, much less individual backs. The NFL hasn't seen a 400 carry back in 13 years. Now, there will always be a place for the workhorses like Ezekiel Elliott, Todd Gurley, and Saquon Barkley. They may still touch the ball 30, 35 times per game, but offenses are replacing some of their runs with receptions. The NFL is now looking for the hybrid back these days, a player who is just as good a receiver as a runner, like Christian McCaffrey, who caught 107 passes last season, like James White, who caught 87 passes, and Alvin Kamara, who caught 81. That's where the game's headed. The hands are becoming as important in a running back, if not more, than his legs. 
and that's why there was so little buzz about running backs at the Combine. The draft day question is no longer, can he run? It's, can he catch? Okay, Gooseman, i got a quick question for you. I know what time's running out here, but uh, what if Jim Brown or Gail Sayers was in this draft? Are they looking at his legs or are they looking at his hands? Well, Elliot Gurley and Barkley were all top ten picks. They look at right. their legs. There will always be a place for the elite back. But in today's NFL, he'd better be able to catch the ball. Elliot Gurley and Barkley, by the way, all went to a drafted higher than Jim Brown. I know. I don't know if Jim Brown could catch the ball because they never threw it to him. He was just trampling. <laughs> Didn't need to. <laughs> Didn't need to. He handed it to him let him trample everybody. Hey, great. thanks, Doc. I'll tell you what. I know who can run. We can. And we're going to run to our <laughs> next, next commercial. In the meantime, uh, we're looking at Matt Mayoko up next with his take on what the 49ers do with the second pick of this year's draft. You're listening to Talk Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we addressed the needs of the Arizona Cardinals in the first hour, and now well, now we're going to go to the second spot in the draft where the San Francisco 49ers sit, at least for the time being. That's where they sit. So now the question, what happens next? Oh, that's why we have Hall of Fame voter and frequent guest... Matt Mayoko of NBC Sports Bay Area with us. And, Maddie, a lot of talk out there about teams wanting to move up to take a Kyler Murray or a Dwayne Haskins. 49ers don't need a QB. So what, in your mind, is the likelihood of them trading out of the second spot? I don't think it's too high. The only way, the only scenario I see the 49ers trading out of the two spots is if somehow uh, Odell Beckham Jr. kind of falls in their lap and maybe they, they trade out at two and go back to six and give the New York Giants something else. But as I see it right now, they're kind of in a prime spot. And the whole idea of Kyler Murray going number one to the Arizona Cardinals means that if the 49ers stay at two, they will for sure get the number one guy on their draft board. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that leads me to the obvious question. Who's the number one guy on the draft board, or who's the number one guy you think should be on their draft board? I think the number one guy who should be on their draft board is Nick Bosa, with Josh Allen running a close second. And the reason is the 49ers need an edge rusher, You know, whether it's a guy who's going to line up a defensive end for three downs and get after the quarterback, or whether it's a guy like Josh Allen who can be a Sam linebacker and then on third downs, put his hand in the dirt and go get the quarterback. They need somebody like that. You know, the, you could look at the 49ers' recent draft and say, well, you know, they, they drafted in the first round Eric Armstead, uh, DeForest Buckner, Solomon Thomas. Are they really going to get another defensive lineman? And my answer to that would be yes, because the style of defensive lineman they would get at number two would not be the style of those other guys. DeForest Buckner is a very good player. You know, he had 12 sacks this last season, was basically their only pass rush. He didn't have any help on the outside. The 49ers need an edge rusher, a guy who can help complement DeForest Buckner. And then all of a sudden, you're going to see that entire defense get better. The linebacker play will get better. The cornerbacks will, will be better. The safeties will be better, all because of an added edge rusher. Matt, what, uh, what separates Bosa from Allen? I think his, his power, you know, he's got 
you know, he's a guy that he's all ball. You know, if you, if you talk to him, he was a very serious kid. Uh, I think he's a lot like his brother personality-wise. He's got the physical tools. He's not as lean and tall as his brother, but he's got that bend around the edge. He's a student of the game. I was talking to him at the Super Bowl, and he's very difficult to kind of get answers out of. But when I started asking him about his passion for the game and what he loves about football, he kind of lit up. He said that one of the things he really loves about football is seeing somebody use a pass rush move and then basically going to practice or working on one-on-one on on trying to replicate that move and then getting better with it and working with it and seeing if it works as part of his game. And I think when he talked to teams this week, including the 49ers at at the Combine, that's one of the things he told them, that he believes that he will always be getting better, that, you know, the guy you see week one, it won't be the same guy you see week one in year four, five, or six because he's always going to be tinkering. He's always going to be making adjustments to his game. He, he takes the game of football very seriously, and so I think that's what separates him uh, from some of the other edge rushers. Now, with Josh Allen, he's got tremendous versatility. You know, He can drop in coverage. He can cover tight ends. He also has that athleticism, uh, and he's got a good work ethic. He's a great character guy. He run the, won the Ronnie Lott Impact Trophy, which is, goes to the best defensive player slash character guy. So I think whoever gets either one of those two guys is going to be coming out of this draft as a winner. So let's say they get either Bosa or Allen at two. What would their next two or three priorities be in the next coming rounds? Well, as things stand now, you know, this, the free agency will get going next week. I don't expect the 49ers to spend any money or big money on a wide receiver. The the exception would be if somehow they end up with Odell Beckham Jr. But I would think the second pick that the 49ers have, which is 36 overall, is kind of a sweet spot for the wide receivers. You know, there might be three of those guys off the board, but there could be somebody there. Um, you know, originally I thought, you know, second or third round, the 49ers could take a guard. But as they kind of work their way through this, they already signed, re-signed their starting guard from last year, Mike Person, a guy that is, has been in the league for eight or nine years really played well last season. So the 49ers are basically signaling, you know, we got our offensive line, let's work on some other positions. So to, to me, wide receiver would be a spot. You know, if, you're, if you get a wide receiver in free agency, you're going to have to pay, overpay big money. So I think if a number, you know, in the second round, they took a, a, a wide receiver last year, Dante Pettis, and he showed some promise, but I think that they can stack another wide receiver on top of that and fill a, a, the, probably the biggest need they have on the offensive side of the ball. Well, uh, uh, according to my friend Antonio Brown, he's actually the answer to the 49ers' dreams <laughs> and that they, they would very much uh, want to have him in their employ. Uh, would you expect them to make any kind of play for him? Because, you know, as mercurial as he may be, we all know what he can do when he's playing football. He is a really good football player. He's also a really big headache. And where the 49ers are, they've 
they have really paid a lot of attention to the culture of this team and getting the right kind of guys in the building. Last year, Kyle Shanahan was, was telling me that one of the things they try to do with, with veteran players that they bring in from the outside is to make sure they're bringing in the right kind of guys. He said he doesn't mind overpaying for a player as long as you're overpaying for the character. And whenever you pay big money to a guy, everybody else, the other 52 guys in the locker room kind of look around and they say, okay, that's the kind of guy they want. You know, they pay attention to that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Antonio Brown is not the kind of guy that the 49ers would want, especially where they are now. Maybe if they're one guy away from being a contender, maybe you, you take a calculated gamble and bring him aboard. But where they are now, I don't think there's a chance that they would go after him. And especially when you hear those comments he made to Jeff Darlington over the weekend talking about wherever I'm going, I'm going on my terms. <laughs> you know, I'm the one who's going to be kind of setting the, the agenda here. It's not going to be the team I'm going to. That is the last thing the 49ers need, and they are not at all interested in him. Sounds like he's headed to the Raiders. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe. Oh, my God. Just what they need is one more fool. This is great. Uh, uh, another question about uh, you know, Shanahan himself. Uh, you know, a lot of people talk about him, terrific coach, smart guy, uh, you know, young guy on the rise, all that. But let's look at the facts. The facts are he's 10 and 22 as a head coach. Uh, do you share the sort of general optimistic feelings about him, number one? And number two, can he survive another, you know, 5 and 11, 6 and 10 season? Because we know this is a, a pretty impatient league. Well, I, I, uh, I'm kind of in a, in a quandary when, when talking about Kyle Shanahan because I, I'm going to hit on both of your points. I think he's a really good coach. I think he's an outstanding coach. I think he has a really good touch on what, it, what a head coach should be. But it's tough to praise him when, as you mentioned, he has a 10-22 and 22 record. So, you know, he's got to show it. And at some point, you know, if if, if he doesn't start showing it soon, uh, then there's just no way you can make the argument that he's a good coach. But, you know, I see stuff like the way he schemes offenses. You know, George Kittle had more yards after the catch this season than any tight end in NFL history. And, you know, according to Pro Football Focus, more than any, you know, far and away more than anybody else in the league. The reason is, yeah, George Kittle's a really good tight end. And, and in his second year, he elevated his game uh, to, a, to a big degree. But so many times, George Kittle would catch a pass, and there wouldn't be anybody within 15 yards of him, which tells you that's Kyle Shanahan scheming things up. As far as the potential of the hot seat, when Kyle Shanahan was talking to the 49ers, talking to Jed York about this head coaching opportunity. One of the things that Kyle Shanahan wanted was a six-year contract because the roster was in such sorry shape, and he saw that Jim Tomsula lasted one year, Chip Kelly lasted one year. So as much as as he heard from Jed York that I'm going to be patient, you're going to have plenty of time, there was a part of him that said, well, you just fired the – the last two coaches after one year. So he asked for a six-year contract, and he got it. He got a six-year contract. John Lynch got a six-year contract. So they're two years in, and I think there were unreasonable expectations this last year because the the curve for winning was accelerating.
accelerated because of the acquisition of Jimmy Garoppolo. Well, Jimmy Garoppolo goes out week three, and now all of a sudden you can see all the holes on this team. So is there pressure on these guys to win this year? I, I mean, there's, there's pressure on them to improve. I don't think they have to be a playoff team this year, but they do have to show improvement. But regardless, I, I don't think they're getting rid of either one of those guys, the coach or the general manager, after three years on six-year contracts. Hey, Maddie, we got to go, but I, I was just going to tell you, I don't think George Kittle's success is as much tied to uh, Kyle Shanahan as it is genetics, because after all, his parents were Mom Pa Kittle. Oh, you went <laughs> there. there. You go. Yeah, you, went there. <laughs> See what we have to deal with, Maddie? different than I. <laughs> if you weren't moving along, I would have hung up. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Maddie, thanks so much for the time. Thanks for making good okay, luck thanks, with the draft. Thank you. Appreciate it. You got it. That's all the fame. Go to Matt Mayoko from San Francisco and NBC Sports Bay Area. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Our next guest, Charles Johnson, is playing as if he's on a mission. And you know what? If he keeps producing the way he has the first four games, the Alliance of American Football League, that mission's going to take him back to the NFL, which, of course, is where he was in 2013 when the Green Bay Packers made him a seventh-round draft pick. Then one year later, Charles had a breakout season. Uh, it wasn't with Green Bay or Cleveland, where he was a member of the practice squads in both places, but with Minnesota. Yes, the Vikings, who were in 11 games, he became a starter and caught 31 passes for 476 yards and two TDs. But then, well, then a combination of injuries, NFL politics, and dwindling production. The next two seasons led him to bounce from the Vikings to the Panthers and finally to the New York Jets, where he caught rookie quarterback Sam Darnold's first TD throw before being released at the end of last summer. Took some persuading to get him back into pro football, but he's making the most of it now with Steve Spurrier's Orlando Apollos, and he's making the most of it today with us. Charles, thanks so much for being here. Hey, thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. Well, I'm wondering, Charles, uh, you know, your GM uh, in Orlando, Tim Russell, came out and said recently, I don't know why he's in our league. Now, a lot of times that would make you nervous if you're uh, <laughs> if you GM say that. Uh, so, uh, but in your case, obviously, it was a, it was a compliment. Uh, why do you think things didn't quite work out the first time in the NFL? And do you expect uh, to be in an NFL camp this summer? Um, I mean, my, I mean, right now I'm really just focused on the mission that we have at hand right now. I'm really not too focused about where it's going to lead me, where it's going to take me. I'm just out here trying to really enjoy this game, have fun with the game, and do it because I love it, not too much of what it's going to do for me. Um, I mean, I'm having fun with it all, man. And uh, I, I got to come out here and really just play for the love of the game. And I kind of feel like that I'm doing it this way, doing it the way that I'm doing it, smiling, having fun with it all. It's really making me open up to be able to be, be the player I really am. Charles, you said originally you did not intend to play in the Alliance. Why not? And who convinced you to give it a try? <laughs> yeah, initially I wasn't. I, I mean, I've been hit up. Uh, they told my agent that they were they were interested in me coming and everything. And uh, my agent didn't even bring it to my attention. He just was like, "I know, I know you're not interested." I'm like, "Yeah, I'm really not interested." Uh, if something happens, it happen. And, then, man, I got a few friends that play on the Arizona team. I got a guy who plays on a Salt Lake team, and they just continue writing me, man. My guy on the Arizona team, he was just, he wrote me consistently. He was like, man, come play, man, come play. They would send me text messages. And one day he sent me a really long text message, 
And there was one word that all, that stuck out in the word fun. And I wrote him back and I said, you don't have to say anymore. All, all I wanted to see was you say when I pick up the word, word fun. I said, fun is the only thing I'm, I'm really looking for right now. And uh, I kind of just was like, all right, I'll, let's get this thing a try. Sounds like we should go to the uh, yeah Alaska. exactly. I like that, fun too. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a great deal. <laughs> hey uh, Charles, when you were answering Ron's question, you were talking about going to the Alliance because you can be the player you really are. You said, "I want to be the player I really am." Who is the oh yeah you really are? Who is the player you really are? Man, I, I'm a, I think I'm a very intelligent player. I can make every play. I can run every route. I mean, I think I'm a all around receiver. If you ask me, I mean. There's things that I'm better at, things that I'm not as good at, but I, I try to be better at the things I'm not as good at, but I try even harder to be even better at the things I'm good at. So it's, it's just, it's just, it's different in the alliance, man. Everybody's equal, man, and it's, it's no politics involved. And people, you don't feel like people are out to get you or the coaches are out to kind of, you know, find another guy to replace you so quickly. Like, everybody's equal and they want to see successful. Everybody's on the same mission to win football games. And it's all about if you perform in practice during the week and you do a good job, you'll be playing on Sunday. It doesn't matter what you did beforehand. It doesn't matter how much money you make, what round draft pick you were. If you perform in practice, Spurrier is going to put you in the game regardless. Well, that's one of the things, since, since you mentioned that, I wanted to uh, touch on that a little bit, that idea of you came in as the seventh-round pick, a 216th guy taken, I think it was. Um and you know the three of us have all been around here a long time and, and certainly understand how it works. Guy comes in with another one pick. He, he you know he has almost job security for several years. Um, how difficult was it for you because of how you came in the league? Not your talent, but because you were seen as well. He's a bottom of the draft guy. Did it real? How much do you think it really hurt you? Um, I think it. I think it hurts for a little bit, especially when there's other guys at the same position who may be above you and uh, who are drafted before you or make a little bit more money. Uh, it, it is difficult for you, but you would think that being at that level, talent over, oversees everything, and uh, each team wants to put the best 11 guys out there on the field each and every each and every play. And unfortunately, in some circumstances, that's not how it is. Um, the guys upstairs, their job's on the line, too. So if they draft somebody first round or they pay somebody $10 million, and all of a sudden there's a guy like me, seventh round, that's playing over them, it kind of looks bad on those guys upstairs, if you ask me. So it's their job's at stake, too. So it's just a business, man. And that's, it's unfortunate, but that's just kind of how it goes. Uh, Nate Newton won three Super Bowls with the Cowboys in the 1990s, but he once told me the most fun he ever had playing football was for Steve Spurrier in the USFL Tampa Bay Bandits. So how is the old ball coach still keeping it fun for you guys? Yeah, man, Coach Spurrier is fun. We always, <laughs> like, every day we're laughing at Coach Spurrier, man. He's always doing something crazy, always saying something crazy. He just he has a lot of just random outbursts and just saying just, just funny things, and He's a legend, man, and uh, it's been an honor just to be able to play with him and be able to see how he's been so successful over the years. And, I mean, yeah, man, he's a, he's a good guy at heart, man. He, I mean, you can see that he really loves the game. He cares about winning. He, he does it because he loves it. And that's why we all really appreciate that. Hey, Charles, following up on that, I mean, you were out of football last year, and now I'm looking at your numbers this year. You had a league record 192 yards receiving in one game. You're averaging nearly 18 yards a catch. Your team's unbeaten. What 
is going on with you? I mean, you're out of football for a year, and now you're coming back and you're setting this league on fire. How are you doing it? How did, how did you pick up where you left off in 2014? Um, I think it's just kind of, I mean, yeah, I was out. I uh, had knee surgery in 2017 with the Panthers, and I missed that whole year, and uh, I didn't get to really play this year besides preseason. And uh, I just kind of, I guess my body kind of got to rest a little bit. And, I mean, it's always just been there. Um, and I always like to say, man, if a guy's given a fair opportunity and the coaches and the, and the coaches love you, then you can be successful in, in any league. To me, it's just like it's all about the fair opportunity and coaches is that believe in me. And uh, if you can have that anywhere you go, I think you can be successful. And there's been places where in Minnesota, coaches did believe me, believe in me at, at certain times, and there's sometimes they didn't. There's different places, so it's all about the opportunities and how how they how they're presented. So like some people who are great in the NFL, the coaches believe in those guys and they set them up in the right circumstances, put them in the right position to be successful. And uh, in the, here in the AF with the Orlando Apollos, they believe in me. My coaches trust me. The quarterback trusts me. My team trusts me. And they set me up for the right opportunities to be successful. So it's just been, it's just, I got to go out there and do the easy part is, which get open. <laughs> <laughs> Not for the three of us. It's very easy for you, I'm sure, but uh, <laughs> not so right. much. Uh, you know, you mentioned about having sort of kind of lost the joy of playing football for a while. Uh, in the pros, and, and, and now the joy's back in the game, and you're looking at things uh, differently. How are you different, uh, just in terms of, of your approach here in Orlando, as opposed to maybe what it was when you were in the middle of trying to make it in the NFL? Yeah, I think it's a little bit different. I used to let things get to me a little bit in the NFL. When things weren't right, when I figured I, I'm, I'm better than guys, why these guys in front of me, I would let it get to me mentally. And now I'm just at a point where I'm just, I'm just happy. I'm just, I'm just happy, and I got a bunch of happiness built up inside of me, and it can't be taken away. And uh, I don't take, I don't take a moment for granted anymore, man. Uh, I try to live each day, each by each day, each minute, and uh, just try to enjoy it because it could be taken from me so fast, and I don't want to be. I don't want to be that moment when something happens that's crazy and my last thought was I was bad at someone or I was frustrated because of some situation. I want to go out and say I did what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it and I was happy doing it. So I just kind of built that mindset over the last year or so and just said I don't really care what people think of me, um, who they say I am. I'm just going to be the man I want to be and uh, be a God-fearing man and continue to grind. Yeah, when you got to Orlando, you already knew the quarterback, Garrett Gilbert. Did that make the transition easier? And in your eyes, is he an NFL-caliber quarterback? Yeah, it did make the uh, transition a little bit easier to come in and see a familiar face, especially with the being the quarterback, somebody that you're familiar with. And, I mean, me and him have a strong connection and hopefully it continues to grow. And I think I think Garrett Gilbert has everything it takes to be an NFL quarterback. Um, he, he can make every throw. He's very, very intelligent. And he can go out there and he know how to lead the, lead the football team. He comes in the huddle. He don't try to be bigger than anybody. He comes in just like one of the guys and say, hey, let's get it one play at a time. Let's make this first. And that's what you like to see from a quarterback, somebody who's, who's one of us, not someone who, who feels like they're above us and they just want to go out there and he's willing to. Like, man, I watch the film. Sometimes he stands in there and just gets hit and delivers passes and he doesn't get up. He doesn't say anything. He just say, hey, I'll say the next play. And that's what I like about him. Hey Charles, I got a question for you. Um, 
based on what you said earlier, talking about your success might be partly because of taking last year or having last year off, that you're fresher, that sort of thing. But I listen to you, and you talk about how different the alliance is. There are no politics. You're just happy. You're living for the moment. It sounds like it's as much mental as it is physical. Uh, is, is that the case? I mean, you have a completely different mental approach now? Yeah, man. I mean, mentally, I think I'm a little bit different. Uh, I mean, in Minnesota for years, man, I was very, very happy. And then I kind of caught some injuries and things like going how I thought they might have gone. And, uh, you know, kind of mentally, kind of, I kind of tapped out. I kind of was getting frustrated. I, I kind of felt disrespected in a sense where I didn't know why things were going the way they did. But that wasn't my plan. It was God's plan. So I just had to really sit back and just, hey, get fix my mental side also along with my physical side and try to keep myself healthier and just say, let's go grind and whatever happens But was there a defining moment that got you to this place? Was there something that happened that got you to this place? Oh, there's, a, there's things that happen every day, man. I mean, I watched my dad struggling with illness and uh, never know when, when it's going to be his last day. And I don't want to be that moment where it was a moment where I was maybe mad about something where I didn't want to talk to him or I had a family member die uh, a couple of weeks ago and I just remember it's like it's little things like that and I remember the last time she called me I didn't pick up so it's like little moments like that that we don't think about until it really happens and you know I don't want to be a moment where I'm mad and then something happens and I, I'm not living I'm not happy and I'm not doing the things right that I need to do so I kind of just man I'm just trying to live for the moment man because the life that we're on this earth is so short and I'm trying to grab everything I can out of it. How difficult was it for you last season not to be playing football? Because I assume you've probably been playing football in the fall since you were a kid, I would I would assume. Was it kind of weird for you to games being played and you're not in them? Yeah, it was very difficult, uh, especially watching. I mean, when I was with the Jets, I thought I was, I mean, I was coming off a knee surgery, so I was still working my way back, and I thought I was doing all right. Uh, I was getting a lot of good good praise from the coaching staff and the players, and unfortunately it didn't work out for me. Uh, and sitting around the whole season, basically, I was like, man, this, is, this sucks. Like, uh, I'm healthy now. I can play. I know I can play. I'm just sitting there. I get to just watch. But I really didn't even get to watch. I just, I just kind of kept my mind off it, stayed stayed uh, ready if, if they were going to call and did other things with my life. And, uh, I mean, I got into uh, real estate. I, I went and worked on a few of my houses, got a little dusty and everything. It worked out. So <laughs> I just kind of kept my mind away from it. Hey, Charles, thanks so much for the time. Really enjoyed it. Best of luck with the season and your future. you got three guys here pulling for you. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You got it. Thanks, Charles. Thanks, Charles. That was wide receiver Charles Johnson of the Orlando Apollos. Up next, it's two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're just about the finish line, so let's hear it, Robert. That's the two-minute warning. That's right, it's the signal. We're on to the two-minute drill, so let's get started. Texas cornerback Chris Boyd. Yeah, he was asked at the Combine if he has two testicles. Why? Because you can't play football without balls. <laughs> Maybe the greatest thing you've ever said, Gooseman. Uh, I shouldn't even answer after that. Uh, I think someone wanted to see if he could count. <laughs> Why is it, as Saquon Barkley suggested, so disrespectful to ask Trace McSorley to change positions? I think Berkeley is obviously hoping the NFL forget the last Penn State quarterback, Christian Hackenberg. <laughs> uh, 
I think it's because athletes no longer have any idea what it means to be disrespected. True or false, Derek Carr is, as John Gruden says, franchise quarterback. First off, we need Gruden to define franchise quarterback for us. Yeah, he didn't say for who. Uh, John Gruden said it. It's false. <laughs> the Raiders have three first-round draft picks. What do they do with them? Pass rusher, pass rusher, pass rusher. Screw it up, screw it up, screw it up. <laughs> Antonio Brown says he doesn't have to play football because, quote, I don't need the game, unquote. What does he need? Attention. One word, therapy. Washington's Bruce Allen said the Redskins weren't interested in Joe Flacco. Why not? When you represent the nation's capital, you don't take Baltimore's hands-me-downs. Exactly. Come on, Clark, you used to live in Baltimore. Nobody in D.C. likes anything in Baltimore. So Charm City, baby. Where does former Giants safety Landon Collins go next? To a defense that needs a box safety. I would say he goes to either the highest bidder or the Patriots if he's willing to go to the lowest bidder. Nick Bosa, Joey Bosa, or the Bosa Nova? Villa Nova. Gooseman <laughs> 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 oh, is on fire today. Blame it on the Bosa Nova, baby. Chiefs want to change overtime rules, guaranteeing each team a possession. Like it or loathe it? Just like it. Build a defense that can stop your opponent. Loathe it. Sudden victory, I say. Former ref Jim Tunney turned 90 last week. What present would you give him? A birthday cake with 90 candles. <laughs> I'd just give him a big whistle. That's the end of the game. If you'd like to listen to this or any podcast, just get a big whistle. Or go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com or themaven.io slash talkoffame. Or just beam us up on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, you can find us next week at this time and on in this station. Thanks for listening.